Welcome back, warriors. Tansei Sego Anibuju. Kwe Nindeluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today's podcast is another special request by our listeners to share the panel discussion from our joint book launch back in February. The two books were Peter McFarlane and Doreen Manuel's book, Brotherhood to Nationhood, published by Between the Lines, and my new book, Warrior Life, by Fernwood Publishing. The event was co-hosted by Between the Lines and Fernwood, opened by Oyinda Alaka from Fernwood, and chaired by David Gray Donald from Between the Lines. Doreen Manuel, Kanahus Manuel, Peter McFarlane, and I discussed the life and legacy of the late George Manuel, the concept of warrior life, the Land Back movement, tiny house warriors, and Indigenous sovereignty. We also had a bit of an interesting conversation about the ongoing political battle between the powerful Manuel family and Canada's Trudeau family, which I don't think you want to miss. So let's get right into the panel discussion. Pam, I'd like to ask you two questions. Um, first, can you tell us about how and why your book Warrior Life came together? And second, uh, you wrote the preface to Brotherhood, or you wrote a preface to Brotherhood to Nationhood. Can you tell us about why you were so keen to write that preface? Well, thanks very much for having me. Kwe Nindeluizi Pampometer. I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq Nation on unceded Mi'kmaq territory. But today I'm coming to you from the sovereign territory of Mississaugas of Scugog. And I'm really honored to be part of the book, my book, also George Manuel's book, and to be here with the Manuel family, and of course, Fernwood and BTL. Thank you for having me. Um, how my book came about was really almost like a part two to the first book, Indigenous Nationhood, Empowering Grassroots Citizens, um, because that first book was really about trying to encourage people to exercise their voices, even if it's unpopular, even if people don't like it, but exercising your voice for the purpose of providing warning and information and analysis to our people on the ground about things that are happening, because we all can't keep our eyes and minds on everything that's happening, and we know literally we're inundated with municipal governments, federal governments, provincial governments, and industry doing a lot of things at once. So if we're all exercising our voice in our areas, we can keep informed about these issues. Of course, it was written during the Harper era, the dreaded Harper era. And so this second book was really Fernwood saying, hey, why don't you do like a part two or a continuation uh, during the Trudeau era and really look at all of your writings and decide whether or not things have changed significantly since the Harper era. So that's what this next book is about. But in addition to exercising voice, it's also about putting everything that we know into action on the ground, you know, like the Manuel family has been doing for multiple generations. And Kanahus is right in the middle of it right now. So it's looking at the Trudeau era and saying, look, we have this change in governors from conservative to liberal. Is everything magically better now? And while the rhetoric's changed and rhetoric's important, um, it 
what the big important issues haven't changed. They haven't given us our land back. They still don't respect our uh, Aboriginal treaty and inherent rights. They don't respect our rights to be self-determining or make decisions. And so that was kind of what this book was really about to, to provide that analysis so that people aren't, you know, lost in the political propaganda. And that, that's really how this book came about. And also to focus on the warriors on the ground really doing this hard work that, you know, we all need to be involved in in some way. And from that, you know, like during writing that second book, I got asked to write the foreword or the preface to this reiteration, this second edition of George Manuel's book. Um, and first of all, I was honored by the request, but second of all, I was like, yes, yes, because so often our people look to the future or look to some new solution, new idea, idea, new technology that's going to be what saves us. When in fact, what this book shows is that even though it was written many years ago, it is just as relevant, if not more relevant today than when it was first written, because all of the lessons and strategies that were learned back then is exactly what we need now, because it's the raw truth. It's all the good, but it's also the bad. It's the things that we did right, things that we can improve. And that's how we need to act on the ground. We need to be strategic in our resistance. We need to be able to adapt and we need to be able to learn from those lessons. And so I think that book, in fact, is more relevant today than ever. So of course, I wanted to write the foreword to it because it's such a rare book. I mean, where else do you see a book about an Indigenous leader that isn't just about painting um, a perfect picture, which isn't realistic for our people? Our people have lived through genocide and colonization and intergenerational trauma. We all have hardship and trauma and imperfect lives. And that's exactly what this book is about. You can still be a hero to our nations with with the trauma and the, you know, suffering that we've had. And so this book is so inspiring. And you can tell I'm, I'm still really excited about it. And the second edition has so many other great things about it, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons this book exudes the warrior life in such a good way for our people. Thanks so much. Wow, that is the, your energy is is infectious, and uh, I want to keep it moving and get to Peter. So, Peter, you first wrote Brotherhood to Nationhood in 1993, or it was published in '93. Can you tell us uh, how this revised edition came into being, and what it was like updating the story for today? Well, first, I think I might go back a bit and tell you where the the original book came from, and it really I'm came. Uh, it really came through um, uh, my friendship with Arthur Manuel, who I met in Montreal in, in the mid-1980s. Uh, and uh, I, I was just back from Central America. I was working on another book at the time. And at some point, Arthur suggested that I might consider doing a book on his father. Um, and I certainly knew who Arthur, uh, who, uh, sorry, who uh, George Manuel was at the time. I had written an article about him in, uh, in 1980 uh, for The Guardian. And, and at the time, George Manuel was really the leading force of the indigenous movement in, in, the, in the world, actually. Um, in the early 1970s, he had taken over the um, National Indian Brotherhood, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the forerunner of the Assembly of First Nations, and he had built it into this amazing activist organization in Ottawa. And at the same time, he had um, 
He was the founding president of the uh, World Council of Indigenous Peoples. So he brought together the indigenous peoples of North and South America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and the uh, Scandinavian Sami people in a single organization. And I think at the time he was nominated three times for uh, Nobel Peace Prizes. Uh, and in the, in the late 70s, he had gone back to British Columbia to launch what he called the People's Movement. And that was an amazing uh, movement. It was like uh, Idle and More on steroids, really. Uh, yeah, uh, that hundreds of activists uh, full-time engaging in all sorts of issues, the self-government issues, and the Constitutional Express. Uh, and I think um, Doreen can speak more on that. She was part of the movement as well as uh, um, George Emanuel's daughter. Uh, and so, I, of course, I was interested in writing the book. Um, but unfortunately, um, George Emanuel passed away in 1989 before I was able to start. So it was the following year, 1990, I went out to Nisqanlis uh, to meet with um, uh, Bobby Emanuel, who was George's oldest uh, son. Uh, Bobby was a considerable politician himself. He had been I think, within two votes of being elected um, uh, uh, national chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And uh, I think at the time he was the head of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Uh, and so he sat me down and he gave me a list. I must have been two dozen names of people I would have to speak to, for, to do as a part of the research of the book. And there were people who worked uh, with George on different levels. It was some of the elders in, uh, in the Scanlath. And uh, I spent, uh, I guess, uh, about three years researching and writing it. Um, and it was, then it was published, as you mentioned, in 1993. So it was more than 25 years later that um, Between the Lines got in touch with me and said they were considering uh, a new edition. And I, I was very happy with the idea that the George Manuel story would be available to a new generation. But uh, the book also, I knew the book had certain flaws, it had some gaps. And uh, it would really require the approval of the family to, to, to be republished. And so I contacted Doreen, and Doreen said, sure, yeah, do it. Um, and then, and more important, she said she would help on the rewriting of it, uh, on the corrections of it, and it's filling in the, the gaps. And I think one of the biggest gaps was uh, it did not give credit to the role of women in the movement. I mean, at the, they were at the highest levels of Georgia's organizations, but they were also they really were the, the energy on the ground. The grassroots was really run by women. And, and again, this is something Doreen can speak about because she was, she was part of that. Um, so that was basically uh, the origin of the two books. Um, and uh, I, I'm very pleased to be part of the, the new edition because it's so much improved because of Doreen's, uh, Doreen's role in it. And so I think she can take the story from there. Yeah, Doreen, would you like to tell us about uh, your experience working on this revised edition? I remember when the first edition was being written, and um, I, I read the galley proofs of it, and I noticed the uh, absence of the woman's voice in that edition. And, a, and another, a, 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 lot, a lot of things that troubled me about it. Um, and when my sister Vera was going to meet with Peter, I gave her a long list of my notes. And a few of the notes made it into the book, particularly about how mom and dad met, because I was with dad uh, when he told me that story about their meeting at the Kokolitsa Hospital. And I told Vera the story, and she told Peter, and that part wound up in the book. But uh, I think, you know, at that point, the book had already pretty much been written. And so there were very few of the changes that I had 
pointed out included in that first edition. So I was excited when Peter suggested we republish it because especially when he was so um, interested in having the corrections made and the additions made. So it felt like a real partnership and um, I was really happy to be involved with that part of the, uh, the evolution of this publishing. You know, people like my dad, like uh, George Manuel, it's important to realize that our indigenous history and history makers like George Manuel are not included in school education for our youth. Yet this sort of information is vital to our people to recognize the role models who paved the way to our existence today. Knowing this history is important to the de development of our identity, our young people's identity. It's also important to build upon the already proven solutions and to learn from the past mistakes. And yet most modern day leaders don't take the time to learn the history. That's why it's, it's important to me that we, we write about the history. We offer it to them. It's, it's, you know, from George Manuel's words himself, and then from uh, Peter being there during that era, capturing that important knowledge from Bob and Arthur and from the other people that he interviewed. It's, it's vital for us to really examine that because you know, you watch non-Indigenous politicians, they look at their history and they build upon, they don't reinvent the wheel every time a new leader comes in. And that's what we should be doing. We should be building upon what's already been done. And we're not doing that. When you see these chiefs that get into the national position, they just seem to go off on their own little path. They have their own little agenda they're already trying to accomplish. They're not looking at the bigger picture and we've gotten ourselves into a real situation now because no one's looking at the really bigger picture and willing to make the kind of sacrifices that leaders like George Manuel made and were willing to make. No one's going out into the international arena the way he did with this. Um, you know, somebody asked me recently, how did George Manuel unite the people of the world what they thought looked so easy and uh it's because he had a very he lived by a very simple set of values it's difficult to live by those values they're easy to state you hear a lot of leaders stating off our values but it's difficult to live by them and he lived by them and when you met him you knew you were meeting somebody really genuine Somebody who didn't want to stay in fancy hotels, didn't want to drive a fancy car, just wanted to care about the people. And everything that he did and every decision he made, he based it on one very solid but simple foundation of every decision has to be made with the thought of the children who are yet unborn. How is this going to affect those children? And when you live by that value, other people who respect that value gravitate towards you. So he was this um, magnet, this energy magnet, and people could feel it. And so when he traveled the world, the people would feel it and they would come to him. And they would be motivated and inspired by that. And they too, their light would be ignited. And they would become part of that energy that, that traveled throughout the world. Um, Doreen, I want to ask you another question, and then I'll ask Kenna, who's the same um, 
in preparation for this event, we were talking about the title of Pam's book, uh, Warrior Life. How do you see Warrior Life as it relates to your father, George Manuel, and his family, and, and how it relates today? When I think of a warrior, I think of somebody who lives by those values, thinking about the children yet unborn. You know, my dad used to tell me um, when I went out to work for the band, for my band, he, he told me, just always remember every single dime that they pay you to work for our people. Every single dime that is administered out to provide services to our people. It belongs to every man, woman, and child, and baby yet unborn. So you work hard. You work 10 times harder than you would if you worked anywhere else. You give everything you've got. And you don't ever take a long break. You don't ever show up late. You don't ever leave early. You just work because that's what you owe to our people. So he raised us with these, these values of um, thinking about our future, protecting the land, protecting the environment, and um, things like, you know, things people never think about, like don't go into debt. Because if you're in debt and you owe money to mortgage for your house and car payment for your car and credit cards, and all of a sudden you lose your job or you're a threat of losing your job because you've been too outspoken, it's too easy for the settlers to shut you down because you're so scared of losing that material. He said, if you're going to get those things, be willing to give it up tomorrow. If it got to that, let it go. Because... That's how they get you. They get you thinking like an individual. They think get you thinking about the material wealth and, and appreciating and wanting those things, those comforts. And um, they, then they, they hook you in to that uh, corporate kind of um, greed and uh, power. Um, but, you know, warriors, you have to be able to sacrifice everything tomorrow sacrifice your life and not not just your physical life this life I'm holding in my body right now but your life the everything that's in your life not your children but I mean everything else that's in your life like um, hopes and dreams thoughts of yeah maybe I want to be you know whatever a veterinarian or something and maybe that'll come true but maybe it won't you know like my brother Bob had wanted to be a mechanic but he had leadership skill in him, and Dad saw that. So Dad honed it. Bobby had a really full life. He, he loved what he did. He came to enjoy it. But he did have another hope that was there, another thought that was there. But that warrior life took over him, and he, he embodied it, and he became it. And he stepped up to the line to fight for his people. You know, um, to me, a warrior, and they can fight in so many different ways in so many different fields. Like Dad told us, um, pick a field. It doesn't have to all be in politics, but every politics lives in every single thing that there is. So you're going to be political no matter what you choose. But pick something, and whatever it is, whether it's in um, law or activism. Uh, or medicine, or media, 
you become a warrior and a leader in that stream and you do everything you can using those tools to help your people. That's all being part of, you know, a warrior. I think people think warrior is somebody who always stands on the front line, but that's one type of warrior. And then there's so many others who support that one who's standing on those, those ones that are standing on the line. I'm um, kind we haven't heard from you yet. And, uh, I know people want to hear from you um, what what look warrior life means to you, and uh, in terms of the legacy of of your grandfather and also the work you're doing today uh, on the on the front lines. Yeah, warrior life to me means exactly everything that my auntie Doreen said. Um, my my grandpa George he passed away when I was a teenager, and my father is Arthur Manuel. And so Doreen is my auntie and him and my, uh, my father, um, younger sister. And I was raised by my father and my mother um, at Naskaunlath and within our territory in Sukhatmukulu and was able to enjoy our territory and um, a lot of our culture and traditions like picking huckleberries, um, just being out onto the territory. Um, one of the memorable things about my life is in my childhood is, is visiting our, our great grandmother on our Tanaka side. So we're both Sukhwatmuk and Tanaka and really influenced by both, both the Tanaka and the Sukhwatmuk culture. Um, my grandfather, George Manuel, has always been an inspiration to us as his grandchildren. And just knowing that he was uh, a sound leader, he was a respected leader from around the world. And it was, we knew that, we grew up with that, knowing that so much people around the world, Indigenous leaders and Indigenous people, grassroots people, um, adored him and loved that there was a leader of his kind, because um, so much people um, aren't born with those leadership skills. And so my first memories is when I was four and a half years old and we were on the Constitution Express um, with my mother and my younger, my, my twin sister, who's also the same age, and my younger brother, who was, I think, five or six months or so. He was just like, just a young baby um, on the train. And for those that don't know, the Constitution Express, you know, traveled all across the country from the West Coast all the way to to Ottawa um, to, you know, fight for our rights, for our Indigenous title and rights. And I was always taught that my grandfather, George Manuel, put Aboriginal title and rights on the table. And, you know, being a warrior to me is fighting for those rights and those actual land rights to the land. And it's not just rights to pick berries or, or fish, it's actual title to the land. And that's what I believe, you know, just being raised in this family um, that my role is as a warrior, um, because it's continuing on the work that my grandfather did, my uncles and my aunties, my grandmothers, you know, all of my relatives did to fight for our land. And like my auntie Doreen said, we have to know our history in order to not make those same mistakes. Like, they put a lot of groundwork in 
to even be where we're at right now, where I'm at here at the Tiny House Warriors, stopping this pipeline. Um, before, when people even left the reserve, they needed a pass, they would get arrested. So we've come a long way where we could actually take land back to oppose and stop a pipeline construction. So um, warrior life um, means that to me. And just thanking for being able to be here on this panel with everybody. For people who aren't familiar, could you say a bit more about uh, the Tiny House Warriors and, and what you're up to? Yeah, um, the Tiny House Warriors, okay, the Tiny House Warriors is a mission to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and we are building 10 tiny houses on wheels that are being launched throughout our territory. Um, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is a bitumen pipeline that tran will transport bitumen from Edmonton, from the Alberta Tar Sands to the Edmonton Terminal to the West Ridge Marine Terminal in Burnaby. And 518 kilometers of this 1,000 plus kilometer pipeline goes through Sukhumakulu. The original one was built in 1953, and this twin pipeline will triple the capacity and It'll increase the tanker size in and around Vancouver and the inlets by sevenfold. And so it's a massive project that um, Canada has purchased this pipeline from a Texas oil giant, Kinder Morgan. And right now we are battling them, not just on the ground, by stopping this man camp that we believe we've been successful in stopping because they haven't built this 1,000 man camp yet. And it's the pipeline workers and so we're on the ground here. We've been here. This is the third winter. And just thank everybody for continuing to support. Um, Pam, um, what's coming up for you when in all this talk of warrior life? Well, it's really about all of the work that our people are doing and have been doing since contact in terms of, you know, this balance between resistance and resurgence. So if you look at any of the warriors on the ground, you know, you look at Kanahus, you look at the, the Wet'suwet'en, you know, you look at Haudenosaunee, Mi'kmaq peoples, you've got very visible warriors on the ground engaging in a particular purpose, protecting land and or water and or um, whatever their particular rights are. But you also have all of the warriors around them, the ones who are helping to take care of their families in the interim or providing supplies or providing much needed research and, and data or, or media releases or websites or GoFundMe pages. And then all of the people who are then on another concentric circle outside of that, who are engaging in uh, educational information to make sure that people know what's happening, organizing, strategizing, fundraising. I mean, it literally takes thousands of us to support warriors on the ground. And I think that's the most important thing about warrior life that people don't understand. They think if they're not the person on the ground, that there's no role for them. But oh my goodness, it is just as important to be at home taking care of the kids who of someone who is on the ground as it is for the person who is, you know, doing that frontline work. And, you know, I echo what everybody has said, obviously. And the thing about you know, warrior life. You can you can point to people like George Manuel. He was a man. He was a warrior that we needed 
urgently at that time. Canada had so many plans with its white paper and everything else to just get rid of us, get rid of the last recognition of us as peoples with our rights, our lands and everything else. And he stepped up. You know, there's, he might have been an imperfect person as we all are. He might have made mistakes in his life like we all have, but he stood up and said, I'm going to do this for my people in my imperfect way, but that's what warriors do. They focus on the purpose, the bigger picture. It's not, you know, about them and they don't make it about them. And I think he's the kind of leader that, you know, the old school warriors who made it about the cause that, that seems to be missing in a lot of areas. And, you know, for him, you think about a person who had come from a place of trauma, you know, think of all the intergenerational trauma of, you know, residential schools and all of Canada's genocidal policies, struggling to find your path, struggling to do right by your family, by your community, by all of the other First Nations in this country, constantly in this struggle to do right, making lots of mis mistakes, good decisions, bad decisions, I'm sure was criticized all of the time, uh, celebrated at the same time. But at the end of the day, he, ended, he was a warrior and a hero for our people. And I can say that even though I'm not from Shaquemek territory, I'm from Mi'kma'ki, because of the work he did at the national stage and the international stage. And that's what warrior life is all about. It wasn't just about him or his focus. And he and the thing is, is he passed that down, you know, to Art and Doreen and all of, all of their relatives. And you can see that. Because look at look at what Kenahus does today. And she didn't just happen into that. That comes from a long history of teachings, of watching, of, of understanding that to be a warrior, it's not about being a saint. I mean, and if and if people think that, you know, you have to be perfect and have never made a mistake or said anything out of turn or done anything out of turn or make money, um, then you're out. Well. Then there's a really short lineup over to the left for people who want to sign up for sainthood. But the rest of us have to be engaged in standing up for our nations. Because quite honestly, if sovereignty is about living, asserting, and defending your land, your territory, your people, your identity, your collective, it's not a right. And if you're not out on the land defending it, if you're not out in, in political forums and legal forums internationally defending it, well, then we won't have it. So we should all be so inspired and thankful by, by the people who are making that sacrifice because it is a sacrifice. We don't often talk about it, but it is a 100% commitment. Your entire life is committed to it, regardless of whether people like you or don't like you or attack you or try to malign you or government involved, you know, does the whole divide and conquer and try to incorporate, you know, doubt and all of that. The warriors who keep doing it anyway, oh, thank goodness for that, because that means we'll still be sitting here sovereign on our territories. When all of this has passed, we were the first ones here and we will be the last ones standing. And I think you know, George Manuel's book and his life and his family and all of those values are so needed today because as the government gets more money and more powerful, we have to show them that, oh, you know, they're lacking the critical power, which is 
our indigeneity and our and our warriors that are here today. And it's just the the book is just so full of that. It's so full of honesty and it creates a place. It shows our youth. Yeah, there's a place for you. And never mind about your mistakes and never mind about things that have happened because you know, we're, this is the warrior lineup. This isn't the perfect people lineup of which we know doesn't exist. And I think our youth need to see that because if we keep presenting that you can only be a leader, you can only be a hero. If you're perfect, then we won't have any. And this book says, welcome aboard. This is the place for warriors who've suffered trauma, who've been colonized, who've survived genocide, and we all have a collective purpose. And, you know, nothing can inspire you more than that kind of manual warrior life value. There were less people back in the day that criticized George Manuel um, because he lived by a set of values that were taught to him by his grandparents. His grandparents were both medicine people. His grandma was a herbologist medicine woman, and his grandpa was a, um, a physical medicine man. And uh, to, there's, this, there's been this shift of colonization. Like colonization has really captured our people. That whole concept I talked about earlier about individuality and um, that corporate mindset of money and materialism has really taken over so many of our people. You know, back in 1969, when Trudeau introduced that white paper policy, there, just before that, there was a lot of discussion all across Canada with all the tribes, because the government was going to start offering services money to them. You know, I asked my mother uh, what it was like for Indigenous people in Canada when the um, repression happened. Um, and she said, what is that? When was it? And I told her and she, she said, oh, we didn't have that. Indigenous people were uh, self-sufficient. We grew all our own food. We hunted our own food. We fished. We, so if they, if money was removed, it didn't affect us because we had no money anyways. And, um, and then they had all this discussion. And in fact, that 1969 meeting that happened in Camels was one of the very first meetings in all of Canada that received government funding. They received a little bit. Most of the money was fundraised by Rose, Charlie, and, and women like that. My mother, people like that, that were fundraising. Um, but a little bit came. And after that, more money came. So that's when that whole welfare mentality started to come in and the government specifically put it into our community because if you just appease people enough, they'll stay calm. You give them too little or nothing, that's when they rise up. So there was a whole generations of people who were like my dad all across Canada. You know, there, there were the Cardinals in Alberta, um, uh, I forget his name, the chief of uh, Hobima Reserve, uh, the Tatusises, all across, you could you name people all across Canada that were part of that early movement. And they all had those same values my dad had. So when he was coming up in politics and they had children like me, who they were raising the way dad raised me with those values. And so we were all coming up. And even though I'm a residential school survivor, I, I wound up in residential school for a while because my mom was, um, her health was failing and dad couldn't manage with us all. So even though I was in there, as soon as I came out, I was back immersed into my culture. My mom sent me to live with my grandma for a while to get 
healed and to work on myself. Even though we suffered, my generation, we were still raised with those values. But you have mom and dad were both survivors, and I'm a survivor. And then our kids were coming up third generation survivors. So in a lot of ways, there was a shift that's happened now. And it's like the government has captured more of our people. Plus, there was that whole 60s scoop, and it continued. They call it the 60s scoop, but it's still going on today. And with so many kids in care not getting those teachings that dad gave us, that were given to my generation of kids, you have these people coming up that really just care about surviving, money, getting by, becoming wealthy and personally self-sufficient and they're not really thinking about our people plus with the limited housing on reserves there's only up to 50 percent living on reserve today so those that go live off reserve they're living in an environment that really feeds that whole individualistic individuality um, perception and uh, identity so you have way more people criticizing the leadership you know, the grassroots leadership like Kanahus, people that attack her are people that want greed. They're greedy. They want something for themselves. And so they'll nitpick every little thing about her. Um, I think some of our leadership needs to be nitpicked, you know, like the current national chief and people like that. I, I would say um, they're too flawed. There's There's a level of being flawed. I mean, there's you know, my dad actually, you know, because he lived by those very simple uh, principles, nobody could accuse him of being greedy. Nobody could accuse him of taking something before somebody else. Nobody could accuse him of some of the things that some of our chiefs are being accused of today. Um, so there was less accusation. And I've heard people in my own family say, living up to the manual values is too hard. I don't want to have to do it. I want to go do my own thing and hurt the land and live off of the environment and, and kill Mother Earth. I want to go do those things. And I don't want the manuals, my manual side of my family telling me what to do. And, uh, and, and they say that kind of thing. And I think, I don't think it's hard. I don't think it's hard to find my way into a profession where I can still support my family and not hurt the earth. I don't think that's difficult, but for the younger ones who didn't get the teachings the way we did, didn't get that ingrained in us, it's hard for them. And I've been really examining that and knowing that our kids need that education. You know, dad used to say, laborers get trained in public school. Public schools train laborers. Private schools train leaders. Unless your kids are going to public school when they come home, you provide them the supplementary education. And that's what he did. He provided that supplementary education. It was about our identity, making us strong inside of ourselves and making us need to help our people like we need air, like we need oxygen, making it part of our um, biology. And that's what our younger kids are missing. That's why it's so vitally important for me. You know, uh, one time I was in a workshop with Alanisa Bomsawin, and she said, we got to get 
our people in that box. And she was pointing at a television set. Because our kids are growing up learning from that box. And if we're not in that box, they're learning everybody else's culture and they're becoming like everybody else. They're not becoming like us. And that's why I work in media and getting our people into the box and and affecting that. And dad used to say, we got to be part of media because at the time in the 70s when we were coming up as warriors, we were uh, begging the Vancouver Sun and CBC to cover our stories, just like we kind of are today still. Um, Because we didn't have any Indigenous writers in Vancouver or anywhere else that I lived or, or news people. So we were begging them to cover our stories and hoping that they would cover it well. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. Today, we have way more of our own people covering the news. You know, one of the first reporters from CBC that went up to Skokwatwell to um, cover the story there with Kanahus and Mayuk and the others that were up there was uh, Duncan McHugh, who's Anishinaabe. And he did a brilliant story. And Dad used to say, we need to have our people in every realm of everything because we need our voices heard. Doreen, I actually wanted to ask uh, one one other question, which is um, Pam was talking about, uh, you know, not everyone needs to be in the spotlight and um, there's lots of work to do behind the scenes and not everyone's sort of, you know, uh, in the national political role. Um, could you tell us a bit more about some of the, the work that was happening that women were doing around uh, George Manuel, and and some of it's in the book, and I really encourage people to read the book, but I'm interested in in your perspective of some of the work you were doing. Um, You've talked about organizing like giant rallies um, and and some of the other work that women were doing that was really essential that sometimes didn't get quite the media coverage that it deserved. Well, Dad always believed in having foot soldiers. We used to call ourselves the foot soldiers. He would train a group of people about what the issues were, the important things that everybody had to know. Because back in the day, he used to do it. And he would go out and even horseback ride into a community. You know, like Mount Curry had uh, only a train that went up near Mount Curry, up by Pemberton. But from Pemberton to Mount Curry, there was no roads. There was horse trails. So he would come in on a train get off and somebody would be waiting there with a couple horses and he'd get on a horse and he'd ride into Mount Curry and he'd stay there for a week because the train only came one way one week and the other way the following week. Stay there for a whole week educating the people. And then after a while, um, he started training people to do that work. And so there were these people that would travel all throughout British Columbia because even in the 70s, not everybody owned a phone. And when dad was starting, next to no one owned a phone. So you couldn't just phone somebody and tell them what was going on. You actually had to go there. So I remember Rosie Tisha saying one time they were traveling up north and they were on such a deadline. Her little boy was with her. Her little boy was the same age as my little boy. And they couldn't even stop for bathroom breaks. So she wasn't drinking anything or eating anything. She was just driving and he needed to go pee. And she gave him an empty apple juice bottle and said, pee in here. We were all joking about that. That's the life of a warrior, man. You got to be somewhere. You got to be somewhere. But women were the fundraisers and the grassroots organizers, you know, like my mom and people like that in dad's early days. 
that's what we that's what the women were would plan all the you know because there like I said there was no government money and he'd have to get to Saskatchewan uh, because they often met like halfway across Canada and he'd have to get there somehow and he'd need a train ticket and he'd need food money and when talking about food money I met mean like nothing like the food money tra- you know leaders get today I mean it was like a dollar or something a day to you know, just to have at least something to eat on the road. And uh, the women would raise that money. My mom used, uh, she used to tan hides and make gloves, and then they would have bingos and um, dinners and different things like that. And it would just raise just enough money or they'd pass the hat and everybody would throw in whatever they could afford. And as the time passed, the women retained that role, but they also started growing into other roles, like being foot soldiers or like, you know, uh, Marie Maruli was dad's right hand with the National Indian Brotherhood, and he would send her down to other countries, you know, in South and Central America. I sent her to Africa to do some of the ground um, work for him. Like, go, like he had already broken the ground, but she would go in and follow up. And, and, um, and that's why when he uh, gave up his position with the World Council, eventually she was one of the people who moved into the World Council to help keep it going and then she was one of the people who started um the uh, world education council um and then people like and you see those women that stayed doing things like Rosa Letizia and Millie Poplar and you know these different women um that continued that work so you know they ran the concerned aboriginal women's movement which I bet you nobody's ever heard of but it was the concerned Aboriginal women's movement who attacked the um, the Ministry of, uh, well, it's called the Ministry of Children and Family today. But I mean, it was over the 60s scoop. Those women just went in full force. They were Grace McCarthy's, we were Grace McCarthy's house and we protested and dem- demonstrated right at her house, demanding changes to the child welfare system. And we got the changes and we rolled that into the concerned Aboriginal women's movement that took over the Department of Indian Affairs and demanded better housing and better opportunities for education. And then it was that group of women who rolled into and became the Constitution Express. So, it's, you know, it's kind of, it, I don't think it was ever a strategy that we talked about, but it was a smart strategy, not keeping the same name forever. You know, when you look at the West Coast Warriors, they got attacked and just pounded down by the police and the government. Um, but we kept changing our name. And so we were like, oh, we're a brand new movement now. No, we're not that movement. We're this one now. And so they would be getting ready to attack the, the child caravan. And we weren't the child caravan anymore. We were now the concerned Aboriginal women's movement. Oh, we're not the concerned Aboriginal movement anymore. We're the Constitution Express. And we just kept changing names. So when I was fighting the First Nations Governance Act, we were uh, the grassroots movement. And my sister asked me to keep that name and and grow it into an actual organization. And I said, no, I'm not going to give them an opportunity to attack us. So I just let it go. Um, But yeah, women, women have just been such a strong part of it. And you know, one time, um, my brother Art, when he was still, uh, I kind of who doesn't even know this story. When he was still drinking, um, Bob was trying to get me involved in organizing something. And Arthur said, ah, we don't need those women. 
bah, you know, what the heck do they know how to do? And I just said, yeah, you're right. You're right. We don't know how to do nothing. Yeah, I'm just going to go home. And I just told my sisters, that's it. We do nothing for them until they learn respect. And Bob already knew. He already knew how much he put on us. And there's, they couldn't get anything done because nobody was raising any money. And they were just like, just ended everything just right there and then. And finally, Bob called me up in the middle of the night and talked me into it. And I came back and raised the money for him. <laughs> I think you have to do that sometimes as a woman. You have to just like teach them a lesson about how much you actually do, because I think they just take it for granted sometimes. Sometimes when you get all wrapped up in the movement of leadership and you don't actually realize where the money is coming from. Pam, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, so George Manuel's life and, and the book really focus a lot on um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And your book is a lot about Justin Trudeau, the son. Um, and so I'm interested to, to hear you, your thoughts on the parallels between them and what's changed or what hasn't changed um, from Trudeau to Trudeau. Wow. Well, um, ultimately, I don't think a lot has changed because our our core issue is with these settler governments, um, not necessarily political parties. But one thing I will notice uh, and that I'm actually quite thankful for is that, you know, if Pierre Elliott Trudeau's legacy is Justin Trudeau. Well, then I'm very thankful that George Manuel and Art Manuel's legacy is Canahoo's manual because every time you see the manual family and others meet them toe to toe on every issue. So, you know, Justin Trudeau thought, oh, I'll just buy the pipeline and then nobody can say anything. Yeah, well, Tiny House Warriors has a lot to say about it and so do a whole lot of other Native people. And so, you know, for every impediment, for every barrier, for every politician that works against us, we have warriors to meet the challenge. And I think people need to see that honor it and celebrate it more because if we only show you know how awful these politicians are in terms of their intentions and there is no doubt now i mean the national inquiry into murder to missing indigenous women and girls did finding a fact and an, an independent legal assessment and concluded you know, that based on fact and law, Canada is guilty of both historic and ongoing genocide. And to be guilty of genocide, you have to have intention. You can't mistakenly genocide people. So the debate over intention is over. So Pierre Elliott Trudeau intended to and did engage in acts of genocide, just like the current prime minister does, just like provincial prime minister or premiers do. And, and that is the reality. So they might package it differently. I mean, you know, former conservative prime minister Stephen Harper was very, um, I would say he was racist, he was aggressive, he was dismissive, he was, you know, very obviously that party was anti-First Nations. Um, and then, you know, the Liberal Party comes in and there, there's no relationship more important than the one with Indigenous peoples, nation to nation, respect for your rights. I will ensure that free prior and informed consent means a veto. And he confirmed that on national TV. And where are we today? 
buying pipelines against the will of First Nations. And so ultimately, we have to look at all of that and be able to deconstruct it and say, yeah, the rhetoric's changed. That's good because we don't need a prime minister continuing to perpetuate hate. But if they're not giving the land back, if they're not respecting our rights and primarily our right to be self-determining, sovereign in our own territories with our own um, laws, then what has fundamentally changed? And not, not a whole lot has fundamentally changed on their part. And all I am saying is that, thank goodness that the manual values haven't changed either and that they're inspiring other people to stand up and resist because every time something negative happens to us, we stand up and resist. And we have to celebrate every little bit of success. So every day that a pipeline is delayed, that's a success. That's a battle that we've won and we need to celebrate that instead of, you know, what the government wants us to think. Oh, it's too big. It's too overwhelming. We'll never be able to stop it. That's not what matters. The warriors on the ground are involved in a day to day battle. You won that one court case. Great. You stopped them today. Great. You won them in the media today. Great. Every one of those are battles that we need to celebrate. Like um, what was happening in George Manuel's time, in Art Manuel's time. And, and to me, that is what's really fundamental because like in, in my book, Warrior Life, yeah, I make the really depressing argument that reconciliation is a lie. It's it's a total lie. That's not at all what's happened under Trudeau. But on the flip side, I also say that we have lots to be hopeful for because hope and is in our resistance and that people are still resisting it and challenging it and calling it out. And that's really hopeful. And so I think between Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Justin Trudeau, they might not have changed a whole lot. But thank goodness we haven't either and we'll be there to meet them on the ground every single time because of families like the Manuel family and many other families across this country who have held on to our Indigenous values and are here to protect the land because it's not just for us. It's for the whole, I mean, it's literally for the whole planet and, you know, Canadians, Americans and others. Um, thank goodness they're rallying behind us because they see there is no future unless you support this side of the battle which is about indigenous land and protecting the ecosystems and the planets for everybody and literally about human rights and safety. So that's my assessment of the Trudeaus. They were, they have been and continue to be matched quite admirably by the manuals. Some fire from Pam. I was so energized by that discussion. Honestly, the manual family have always been such an inspiration to me. For those of you who would like to hear more from this event, <clears throat> for those of you who'd like to hear more, keep For those of you who'd like to hear more, keep in mind that there's more than 30 extra minutes of content from this event. The extra content includes a good number of audience questions. So be sure to check out the full-length event on my YouTube channel, and the link will be posted in the podcast show notes. I'll also be sure to post the links to each of these books so that you can help support the Indigenous movement by buying books for yourself or by buying large numbers of books for your local schools, libraries, universities, and community organizations. And I'll also post links to the Tiny House Warriors where you can help the... <clears throat> 
And I'll also support a link to the Tiny House Warriors where you can help support the land defenders on the ground. Thanks again to Fernwood Publishing and Between the Lines for Thank you again to Fernwood Publishing and Between the Lines for allowing me to use the audio and video from this event to share widely on my podcast, YouTube channel, and all across social media so that we can expand the number of people who are exposed to these amazing books. Thank you to Fernwood Publishing and Between the Lines for allowing... <clears throat> Thank you to Fernwood Publishing... Thanks again to Fernwood Publishing and Between the Lines for allowing me to use the audio and video from this event to share widely on my podcast, YouTube channel, and across all of my social media so that we can help expand the number of people who are educated on these issues. Thanks to all the listeners for taking the time to listen and learn and take action, and please keep sending me your podcast requests, and I'll try to cover as many as I can. And don't forget to support this and don't forget to support this podcast on Patreon. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. We'll all out.